The famous Dr. Livingston never found the source of the Nile River. But today, a few hardy souls can finally claim to having seen its legendary headwaters. One of them is Joanna Lumley. She joins us today to tell us about her 4,000-mile adventure up the Nile, from the Mediterranean into the East African highlands, where she got her first glimpse of its huge crocodiles. It wasn't until we reached Uganda where we saw them basking in all their majestic glory and to see them slipping with a slight bubble from the nostril into the river and then just slip, 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 and you think, ooh, I'll keep my hand out of the water. You have to pack patience and a plan B when your travel plans get interrupted. Samantha Brown suggests it helps to treat it as just another part of your adventure. Let that spontaneity of travel, of being somewhere new, kind of revitalize you and bring you back. Samantha Brown's tips for happy travels and Joanna Lumley's Nile River adventure. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. How do you keep the anxiety that comes when you plan a big trip from wearing you out before you even get on the plane? The host of Places to Love on public TV, Samantha Brown, shares travel tips with us on today's Travel with Rick Steves. She'll help us keep the fun in our travels even when our plans start to unravel. Let's start the hour with an interview that I know you'll enjoy hearing as much as I enjoyed making. British actress Joanna Lumley joined us a few years ago after hosting her own TV travel special. She and her crew searched for the legendary source of the Nile River by sailing upstream to find its fabled headwaters. The world's longest river has been the lifeline for North Africa longer than recorded history. It's true, the Nile River was the conduit for the spread of advanced societies from present-day Sudan, Ethiopia, and Egypt thousands of years ago. The Nile continues to nurture the land as it always has on its 4,000-mile run to the Mediterranean Sea. Long before the space race of the 1960s, explorers in the 19th century set their sights on being the first to locate the true source of the Nile. Now, with a little help from GPS and inflatable powerboats, a handful of determined adventurers have actually been able to locate the very place where the waters that feed the Nile originate. One of those select few to journey all the way to the headwaters of the Nile is a remarkable British woman named Joanna Lumley. She's been honored with the Order of the British Empire, she's a fellow in the Royal Geographical Society, and she's even considered a national treasure in Nepal for her work on behalf of Gurkha veterans. She also happens to be an accomplished actress with roles in dozens of British TV shows and in the movies. But you probably know Joanna Lumley for portraying the beehive-wearing, middle-aged party girl Patsy Stone on the BBC comedy Absolutely Fabulous. She joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to take us up the Nile, as seen on public TV in her four-part travel special, Joanna Lumley's Nile. Joanna, thanks for being here. Honestly, Rick, wasn't that a treat, though, to be allowed to be given a programme saying, would you like to follow the Nile? And first of all, the idea was to start at the source of the Nile and go to the Mediterranean. Then we thought it actually would be much more interesting to start at the Mediterranean, where the great river tips itself out, and to follow it creeping, creeping back, the way that over the centuries people have tried to find the source of the Nile by following the Nile and always being grounded. We thought it would be thrilling because, of course, we now do know where the source of the Nile is, kind of. Joanna, how many borders did you cross to go from the mouth of the Nile all the way to Rwanda? Well, when we got into the Sudan and got to Khartoum, we then went up into Ethiopia to bring, as it were, the Blue Nile back down to Khartoum. But thereafter, we wouldn't because it was a very uh, unsettled time in the Sudan at the time and we weren't allowed to go into the interior at all. 
So we then had to go down to fly down to Uganda okay. and come across north into the Sudan up to Juba okay. to do that journey from there to see the Great Sud. Oh, I noticed that on your map that you went down the Blue Nile and then you cut over skipping a bit of the White Nile and yeah. that was because of political instability. Oui, I would say. I love that start in your show when you're with those guys on that rustic boat and then they sort of yeah. declare, we've left the Mediterranean and now we're in the Nile. We're in the Nile. And everywhere that that great mighty river flows, it's treated almost as a kind of god. You can understand this because it's running through some very, very barren land, very dry land, and it brings wherever it comes. It brings crops and you know, fresh air and date palms and things. It brings water for the animals. I mean, the Nile's much more than Egypt, but when you think about Egypt, Egypt really is a green ribbon running north and south through the desert. That's uh, what it is. Fed by the Nile. The Nile is just exactly that. And without the water of the Nile, suddenly it just goes straight back to desert again. So in a way, they treat it almost like a kind of god. You know, they revere it. It's actually the world's longest river. How long is the river? 4,021 miles or something like that. And the big issue is where is actually the source? Where is the source? I was reading about this, and you covered it in your your beautiful uh, TV production, But it is sort of uh, a little bit of discussion. Is it in Rwanda or is it in Burundi? Uh, What is your take on that? How do you describe finding the actual source 4,000 miles from that point where the Nile leaves the Mediterranean? Well, I think that Hanning Speak found it, which was that the river really starts to pour itself out from Lake Victoria. That's where it kind of starts. Now, there are lots of little rivers feeding into Lake Victoria. So the stylish thing to do is to find the longest tributary to Lake Victoria oh. and say that then can be called the Nile. But in my heart, even though we went into the Rwanda, we followed the longest one and, and you know, we said that's where it is. It's rising in these great mountains in Rwanda. Okay, so, so really the Nile Secretly, I would say it's Victor- starts I, at Lake Victoria. I would Victoria. say it's Lake Victoria. But I think it does. All the little discussions and the competitions and so on is a matter of mm. tracking all these little feeder rivers that come into this huge lake between Uganda and Tanzania and then yes. finding the longest tributary. And that would be technically the source of the Nile. Kind of technically. But then, you know, part of you would say, well, if it's tipping in to this enormous lake, how can you be sure it's tipping out the other side? <laughs> right. It, well, it might be. <laughs> and the odd thing is it flows north. Not many north. rivers flow north, do they? No, and certainly not many mighty rivers. Most of them come down, you know, the Mississippian things, they kind of flow south. And when we look at maps, because we're, well, mad, we look at them and imagine the north is the top, as it were. Right. And the south is the bottom, and so you'd think that gravity, as it were, would kind of pull the water downwards. But anyway, this enormous, mighty river, debatably, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it is the longest river in the world, flows from south to north, and it goes through five immense African countries. Every single one as different as can be, with all their own cultures and histories and climates and peoples. Now, my image, Joanna, is the Nile in Egypt, but when you look at the map, mm. that's just the, the final lap, really. That's just the last bit. In Egypt, it's, it's a ribbon going through the desert. Would you say it's generally a ribbon going through the desert, or is it in lush no. territory otherwise? No, the Sudan, it is a ribbon flowing through the desert of the desert. It's the back mm. of beyond. It's the Nubian desert. It's right. ancient, ancient, and really, really sort of sparse and stony and looks like the side of the moon in most of the places. Mm. But then you come into Uganda, where it's as lush and fertile as you can imagine, filled with hippos and great crocodiles and enormous birds, shoebills, and 
I mean, everything beauteous, like almost like the Garden of Eden. Hmm. And Rwanda, where it's coming down from the high mountains, we were at about, oh, I don't know, 8,000 feet when we found our little source, the tributary into Lake Victoria. It comes from the most complex series of climates. But the ones we think of, really, is the mighty Nile travelling through deserts, really the deserts of Sudan and Egypt. Joanna Lumley is telling us about her incredible journey up the length of the Nile River on Travel with Rick Steves. The trip took her from Alexandria 4,000 miles to the Nile's upland headwaters. Her four-part travel special, Joanna Lumley's Nile, aired on public TV a few years ago. You can look for it on demand from various video streaming services. Joanna, you know, the Nile has two branches, and they come together at Khartoum, the capital of the Sudan. Tell us what the difference between the White Nile is and the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile rises in Ethiopia. It comes through very, very steep gorges. It's virtually unnavigable. People have tried. Many people have died in the attempt. It's a very, very rushing and steep and rocky river, hurtling. It brings the strength into the Nile. The White Nile, so-called, which is the lower part of the Nile, before they join together the Blue and the White and then become the Nile. The White Nile rises sort of in Lake Victoria, debatably in the hills around there. But then it makes its tranquil, placid way down a few cataracts and waterfalls, but largely moving as a broad and uncomplicated navigable river, Mm -hmm. whereas the Blue Nile comes chopping down, bringing the flood waters to Egypt and the Sudan every year when, when the great snows melt and the... You know, the rivers fill with water and come rushing down. They're chalk and cheese, really, those two rivers. Chalk and cheese, white and blue. Joanne, I was yeah. really, uh, I was impressed uh, as you were on this ferry in what seemed like the middle of nowhere and somebody recognized you from your role as a <laughs> Bond girl on Her Majesty's Secret I Service. I was wondering, you traveled 4,000 yeah. miles on the Nile and you've got a yeah. Bond girl <laughs> history with your TV and movie career. Just pretend you're going to write a, a James Bond uh, bit. Where on the Nile yeah. would you write a little James Bond bit? It would start almost exactly where that kind person recognized me. When you've you've left the great sophistication and kind of glamorous ancient history of Egypt, the charted area, and suddenly you've crossed Lake Nasser mm. and you're chopping across Lake Nasser towards the tiny jetty into the Sudan, which is the largest African country by far, and it's just a little jetty, and I think that's exactly where James Bond would be waiting, with his eyes narrowed and his hand on on the Beretta tucked into his belt. And there in the distance, in a tank, would be sitting (laughs) Blofeld, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And you're right, because it is quite a contrast. You come into, you know, Egypt, and there's resorts, and there's the Aswan Dam, and there's all the this great, grandiose stuff at Luxor. And then you get to the Sudan, which is, I think it's about as big as the United States, but it's only got maybe 100 miles of paved road. And the welcome is this bare, basic, concrete jetty. Tiny little jetty, yeah. And, and then And James great, Bond dusty, <laughs> sandy hills and, oh, I mean, pretty thrilling, really. Okay, now you had, well, let's just kind of go through the itinerary. You started in Egypt and you started in Alexandria. What was your take on yeah. Alexandria, the great Egyptian Mediterranean port? Special. Special. I'd been to Cairo before, but I'd never been to Alexandria. So it was a great, great thrill to come to a place so full of history. So many of the grandest names in history have been there, have lived there, belonged there. It reads like a sort of list of half-god, half-men, you know? And it has this wonderful sort of um, early 20th century history, too, with Art Deco buildings and the, and the intrigue between the wars. Amazing to think, like, four million people live in Alexandria now. I know. It's extraordinary, isn't it? 
and the feeling that it is a Mediterranean city. Okay, yeah. it's right on the north of North Africa, but it's Mediterranean, and it's got that slightly Mediterranean feel, which disappears almost at once you catch the train and begin to move into the great open farmlands which lead you into Cairo, because by then suddenly you're in an Arab, you're in an Egyptian country. But Alexandria's got a feeling that you're kind of flirting with Nice, you know? You're right. It's got that flavor of the Mediterranean. And then mm. you, you lose that when you go to Cairo, just three hours away by train or something. What yeah. was your take on Cairo? I adored it. I mean, it, it is colossal. It's got 18 million people in it. It's phenomenally large. The river is immense at that point, very, very wide, very sleepy, crisscrossed by bridges. Egypt is so full of splendors and wonders. But I think the strangest thing is, is to realize that the Nile used to flow directly underneath mm -hmm. the Great Pyramids. And now, of course, it's pushed right back and it's just a little thin ribbon and all that land, which was great river and empty land, is now crowded up, jostle, 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 the world <laughs> growing, pushing up, getting closer and closer to the Great Pyramids. I was there also. It was just before their political upheaval turned deadly. And, and while I was there, I noticed that the pyramids, they seemed to draw a line in the sand for Cairo. Well, it's the most strange feeling. I think what it is, is I think they've kind of made, I don't think national park's the right word, but I think they've sort of stopped it and said, this is as far as we go. Added to which, the land they've built on was land that used to be flooded every year by the Nile when, when the great rains came and the, the snows melted. There's more adventure up the Nile, coming right up as Joanna Lumley takes us from the chaos of Cairo to the splendor of Luxor, the Nubian desert, and the uplands of East Africa. And in just a bit, Samantha Brown shares her advice for keeping your travels joyful, even when things might start to get a bit out of control. It's Travel with Rick Steves. And I'm Colin Clement. I'm Aslan from Edinburgh, Scotland. I'm from Scandinavia, from Scotland, from Scotland. I'm from Rick Steves. And that was Egyptian Arabic for My name is Colin Clement. I'm originally from Edinburgh, Scotland, but I live in Alexandria, Egypt. And I travel with Rick Steves. And as me Colin Clement, an Aslan in Edinburgh for Scotland, where I can an Aish for Scandrea, men Hamstoshersena. Well, I know, from Rick Steves. We're working our way up the longest river in the world with Joanna Lumley right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You may know Joanna from her many roles in theater, film, and TV, including as the irrepressible Patsy Stone on Absolutely Fabulous. A few years ago, she produced a travel special that aired on public TV called Joanna Lumley's Nile. So far, we've made it to the outskirts of Cairo on her 4,000-mile journey upstream to find what adventurers have looked for for years, the source of the Nile River. Joanna, I also visited Egypt just before political upheaval pretty much shut down their tourism industry for years. What I noticed was that the pyramids seemed to draw a line in the sand for Cairo. It's like they were saying, this is as far as you can spread your massive city. In your special, I enjoyed watching as you clip-clopped your way from the outskirts of the town on a camel named Charlie Brown. And then as soon as you approached the pyramids, it's like there wasn't a city of 18 million people just behind your back anymore. You're riding a camel and you're in another world from 4,000 years ago. Charlie Brown is the most beautiful creature. I spoke very low and I spoke in a very deep voice. Animals quite, they don't like shrill noises. This is Charlie. Hello, Charlie. How old is Charlie? And I spoke very softly to Charlie and I told him how handsome he was. He looks absolutely beautiful. And he kissed me with his whiskery, whiskery face. <laughs> that was a lovely munching kind of kiss. <laughs> and then he was very kind to me, and his owner said he really likes you. Mm. And so I felt extremely happy with him, even when I had to cross a motorway, Rick. 
And I thought, you know, sail before steam. I hope they'll stop. And indeed, the cars <laughs> all quietly came to a halt as we went on the great ships of the desert crossing across these motorways. You know, you, you, you mentioned they, they fold up like a leatherman. And I just think that yes. is the greatest description. I mean, most of us know what a leatherman <laughs> is, that, that multifaceted tool we can stick in our tool belt or in our pocket. And That's then you right. showed it, and the camel collapses. Uh, describe how that works. Just beautiful. They sort of fold up. They go down at the front first, and their great, beautiful knees buckle up under them. Then the back legs snap up, and suddenly they're, after a huge jolt, and at one point you're 45 degrees to the ground if you're sitting on the, on the saddle, and then suddenly you're back to normal again, mm. and you just swing your leg over and can slip down. Now, you took the night train from Cairo down to Luxor, and then yeah. you got in the boat and sailed to, uh, and I love the approach you had to Aswan, and then, and then from there, Abu Simbel. Can you talk a little bit about that stretch of the Nile? Well, the, the train journey was lovely, but it was a sort of overnight train, and that lovely impatience you have when you're travelling in the darkness, you can't really see what, what it's like. You get the odd glimpse of of the river, but you couldn't really see where you were. And then suddenly arriving at Luxor the next morning with all the glories of that mm. phenomenal place. I mean, dear people listening, if you haven't been to Luxor, save up every penny you've got mm-hmm. and get up there, get to Egypt, and somehow get to Luxor because oh, you won't yeah. be disappointed. We're cruising up the Nile River, the lifeline of civilization for thousands of years with Joanna Lumley on Travel with Rick Steves. American audiences know her best from her film and TV roles, especially as Patsy Stone on the hit comedy Absolutely Fabulous. Joanna Lumley's Nile was released on DVD by Acorn TV. They're now streaming her latest travel special, In the Land of the Northern Lights. Don't you rather love that possessive way I've called it my Nile? Joanna Lumley's Nile. Nile. (laughs) Well, I, you know, you are such an elegant person. And at the same time, from watching your video, it just seemed like you were a beautiful traveler as as well. And there's that very interesting mix. You're surrounded by people sleeping on the deck, literally. And you're Mm -hmm. sitting there being very thoughtful and poetic and composed. Describe what it was like to sail across this giant Lake Nasser. That's the largest man-made lake in the world, I understand, past where the Nile backs up after the Aswan Dam, which was built in 1970 to control the floods uh, that that really bring life to, to Egypt. Rick, it's like an inland sea. It really is. I mean, the scale of that mighty place is just enormous. Half the time you can't see the other side of it. Wow. So when we, when we call it Lake Nasser, it's kind of sea Nasser, really. It's immense. And setting off in the darkness in a really rattling old tin tub of a ship, crammed with people, 500 people crammed on, with all their goods and chattels, everything that people were bringing down from Egypt into the Sudan to bring back to their families with stuff that they'd bought and having having worked abroad and so on, bringing treats to their families. And it was stiflingly hot downstairs Mm. where you ate the favourite food there, which is called ful, (laughs) F-O-U-L, which is beans. It's like baked beans, but without the tomato sauce. They're very delicious, slightly larger white beans, and they're, they're actually a good and nourishing meal. And as I'm a vegetarian, they suited me down to the ground. But it was so hot downstairs, I thought, I might just go up and sit on the deck for a bit. Well, everybody had the same idea. So everybody in the world was sleeping on the deck with their blankets out and their mats, sometimes a little transistor radio playing, lots of men, some saying their prayers. And I found a little tiny strip which had several cockroaches running about <laughs> in it. And I thought, if I just hunker down here... I can probably have a calm night, put my kit bag under my head and shoulders, and it was so hot you didn't need a cover. Just lay down there, and actually it was lovely. Joanna, you you look like a movie star when you're traveling through Egypt, even if you're wearing your your, uh, your khakis and so on. How was it, surrounded by working-class men on this working-class boat, 
sleeping on the decks surrounded by 50 men. I mean, it's a man's world. You're not just a woman. You're this stately woman from the rich world. Did you feel comfortable? They're very respectful. They're extremely respectful people. And because I respect them, so I always keep, for instance, in an Islamic country, you always keep yourself covered up if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. So you don't have naked arms and legs Mm -hmm. and things. And you don't have a a dipping front. You know, you keep yourself covered Mm -hmm. and always have a scarf ready to cover your hair if if Mm -hmm. people would rather it was that way. It's the easiest way of traveling. And if you're courteous to them and remember to say shukran and thank you and all the nice polite words... And they can tell by your demeanour that you respect them and are so proud to be in their country and happy to be there. And they're always courteous back again. But remember, I've travelled. I'm a traveller. And we were travelling light. There are only six of us on these things. There's a couple of cameramen, sound recordist, the director, the producer, and me. Mm-hmm. And then we, you meet up with your fixer, your dragoman, your interpreter, as it were, in each place that you go to, who right. can speak the local language and knows how to sort things out. But we travel so light, so I carry all my clothes rolled up in bags and stick on my makeup by candlelight and things, and it's fine. The point is you can be elegant and uh, presentable for TV, you know. At the same time, you can be very modest and respectful of the local uh, sensibilities. And I think you you nailed it. It was really impressive. I'm so pleased. You had an adventure with some crocodiles. Tell us, that must have been a fun part of your adventure. Well, meeting somebody, first of all, meeting somebody who'd been damaged by a crocodile. We were determined in this film. The Nile crocodile is one of the most famous animals on earth. It's the one that Tarzan wrestled with in the rivers. You know, they grow to be, I don't know, 18 foot long, absolutely unbelievably huge. And we had to try to find Nile crocodiles for our film because we thought it would be so nice. Well, we looked and looked in Egypt and in the Sudan and we couldn't find anything. Mm. We could see footprints. We could see this and that. I saw an old man who'd been badly injured by a crocodile. He told me the story with an old crocodile skeleton. But it wasn't until we reached Uganda where we saw them basking in all their majestic glory. I love them, Rick. I hate it. I'm sorry to say this. I don't like people killing them mm-hmm. just so they can have a crocodile bag. Mm-hmm. These are great creatures who've been roaming the earth for four million years, mm. far longer than we've been around. Mm-hmm. And they are prehistoric, and they have as much right to be here as we do. Anyway, to see them keeping their mouths wide open to get let the cool air mm. flow into their bodies and to see them slipping with a slight bubble from the nostril into the, oh. into the river and then just slip, 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 and you think, ooh, I'll keep my hand out of the water. Joanna Lumley's Nile is the name of the TV special she filmed sailing up the length of the Nile River by fishing boat, ferry, cruise ship, plane, train, car, and Zapcat, all the way to the recently discovered source of the Nile. You'll find more with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Joanna, you also talked vividly about uh, going through the Nubian desert and then visiting uh, the pyramids of the black pharaohs. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, this is extraordinary. There are more pyramids outside Egypt in the Sudan than there are inside Egypt. These are differently shaped ones. And where we were in Karima, one of the holiest and most extraordinary little sort of respected townships on the edge of the Nile, right out in the desert, right out in the Nubian desert, where the holy mountain, Jebel Barker, is. And Karima was the capital of the whole region. From Karima ran the whole of this great Egyptian Mm. empire. All the pharaohs came from that region and were black, Sudanese, beautiful people who were pharaohs for just generations. And they seem to have been sort of left out of it because their people were buried back in Karima in the Sudan. And I went down into a couple of the tombs which haven't been plundered but which are... Honestly, you can just you just walk across the desert. Mm. There's no, you know, entrance fee, and there are no guards. There's nothing. The big clanging gate, and an old man called Mohammed who lets you in, with torchlight. You can see 
the beauty of these burial chambers. We went to a queen's burial chamber with stars on the sky and a painting of her as a corpse. And then on the other side, her smelling the ankh, which I will spell A-N-K-H if people mm-hmm. want to look it up, that beautiful symbol which became a hippie symbol in the 60s mm-hmm. of eternal life, mm-hmm. like a kind of loop with a cross across it. The god holds it to the queen's nose and suddenly there was a painting of her reinvigorated, life brought back to her. So they believed in life after death as well. Extraordinary. Would these be Nubians? These were Nubians, yeah. It is fascinating to think that pharaohs were from Nubia and they were Nubian. Today, Nubians are are darker-skinned minority in Egypt anyways, and they have traditional villages. But if you want to see the idyllic, you know, time-past village life on the Nile... Apparently, uh, the Nubian villages are really something. And then and then you climbed with the Nubians up their holy mountain. Up to the holy mountain, Jabal Barka. And it was just fantastic. Every Friday on the Muslim holy day, they climb up there. And there was a couple of young newlyweds. When you get married, mm. it's one of the things you do. You climb the mountain and watch the sunset from up there. Mm. There was such a lovely chitter-chattering of little children who, of course, run straight up it. And I was with the old village elder who'd looked after me. And we went up hand in hand, puffing and panting. He said rather charmingly, when I get to 60, I, I shall be feel that I'm climbing the mountain. I didn't say to him, I'm 63 already. <laughs> oh, man. I was so inspired by that whole... Uh, it must oh. have been early in the morning or late at night when you're, you're No, climbing. it was late at night. It was the sun setting, Rick. It was, it was a, just a truly, honestly, <laughs> transcendental feeling. Was crossing borders pretty straightforward? Did you have reservations yes. and visas and so on? Or did you just show you, up well, and we talk were. your way through? No, no, no. We were visaed up to the nostrils. We'd got every kind of pass and permit and photograph and extra pieces of paper. And, of course, remember, we're carrying a lot of camera equipment. And did it all work because you did, you, you, you did all your due uh, diligence? Did you pretty much skip right through the borders? Well, skip might be a bit of an, <laughs> an enchanting word to use. But we got through and there was no problems. The only, the only time we had a problem, funnily enough, was in Uganda, hmm. where for some unbelievable reason, I'd left my yellow fever certificate behind. Mm. And they brought out of a ghastly, what seemed to be a rusty old box, a vast needle and said, oh. we will inject you here. And I went, holy smoke, oh. please don't do that. So we phoned back and we had mine found and faxed through, but that was oh. a bit of a delay. And I thought, never, ever travel without your vaccination. I didn't know they still need that. You still need the vaccination card yeah. for these countries. Yeah, you do. And if absolutely. you don't have it, they bring out the well-used needle. And uh, you, They do. <laughs> or, or, you're, or you're not allowed in. Yeah. I've seen it on, on crossing over to India at the borders. They've got yeah. these guys that come once yes. a day with their well-used needles, and you're wise to get your shots. Joanna Lumley is reliving her adventure up the Nile River with us on Travel with Rick Steves. It's how she filmed a four-part travel special called Joanna Lumley's Nile. Joanna, Lake Nasser is the biggest lake in the world, but it's man-made and it, it feels like a reservoir in a lot of ways. How does Lake Victoria differ? Oh, it's staggering. Because I think Lake Victoria would be more that Eden feel. I think it's got that Eden feel because it is... Lake Nasser, remember, is man-made and therefore, although some bits grow a little bit now on the, on the edges, it's largely within the desert. It's a reservoir in the middle of a desert with the great temple of Abu Simbel rising, mm. you know, saved from the, from the depths to be put up there. But Lake Victoria is, oh, it's kind of paradise. It, you've got everything. You've got every kind of animal on God's earth, butterflies and flowers and birds that you can't believe. Mm. The beauty of it, there's the calm, sweet feeling that you can just swim in it, that you can fish in it, you can laze on it, you can sit in a houseboat, you can travel on it. I don't know. There's something wonderful about Lake Victoria. But you see, the great Victorians came. Nobody could follow the Nile. This is the thing about it, Rick. In the old days, people travelled down. The Egyptians, the Greeks, everybody was looking for the source of the Nile. So they all came down through Egypt into the Sudan. 
That's where the Nile is met by this colossal 14-mile-deep swamp called the Sud, S-U-D-D. Photographed in the air, it looks like something out of from outer space. You just can't fathom how wide it is, made of papyrus islands which float and tiny, mm-hmm. weird little things. It's a bed of mosquitoes. It's staggeringly beautiful and absolutely lethal. Mm. And the river seems to lose its way, and it just becomes this colossal... Uh, on a scale that you a can't lot of the, believe. I understand a lot of the actual bulk of the Nile or the flow of the Nile actually evaporates there sometimes. Evaporates Because there. it's so spread And dissipates out. itself there. Right. But then somehow, having flowed north from the Sudan into mm-hmm. that, from southern Sudan into that, in northern Sudan, somehow it collects itself, and at the end, it combs its hair sideways, mm. <laughs> puts on its jacket again, comes out and says, I'm the Nile. The mighty Nile. <laughs> You know, Joanna, there's a lot of concern about the safety of women or how, how women are welcomed in Muslim countries that, that you traveled through here. What was your take, uh, being a woman in these countries? What was the vibe? Uh, how was your reception? Immensely respectful. I mean, depending on it, what's, how religious people are, you'll find people in cities are friendly and shake hands. Sometimes the more religious Muslims won't, it's discourteous to touch a woman's hand. Women mm-hmm. can greet each other. So right. you, I had lots of hugs from grannies and young girls mm-hmm. and young women and things like that. But if you learn these things and always look around and always err on the side of modesty, mm-hmm. you know, behave properly, don't be bold, you know, don't right. be cheeky, don't be sort of right. lippy, don't behave in a Western way because that's not how it is out there. So leave your shorts behind and your sleeveless blouses. Leave them behind. Joanna, the culmination of this long trip, 4,000 miles from the Mediterranean, was actually getting to whatever you determined the source of the Nile was, the longest tributary coming into Lake Victoria before the mighty Nile heads out of Lake Victoria. Tell us just that last little triumph. What was it like to find what you considered the source of the Nile? Well, it was extraordinary. The three men who determined that this was the longest source of the Nile are called, their nickname is the Three Macs, because they're three New Zealanders who all have Scottish names, Maclay, McKellen, what, Mackenzie, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely fantastic, and they had sorted out and sourced it and done it. And so Cam Maclay decided to lead us inland and upriver, up to the final, final bit. I think we thought this will be a little bit of a stroll in the park. I think we thought it might be a path by a sweet mountain stream and we'd film it in five minutes and sit down and have a picnic. <laughs> well, it turned out to be a fight through the most hellish primeval jungle you've ever come across. You had hip boots Fast on, didn't you? Yeah. trees. We couldn't climb half the trees that had tumbled <laughs> down. We were in swamp and mud up to our knees, sucking the boots off. We were walking through soldier ants, which we couldn't film because the cameraman dropped the camera screaming with us as we were swarmed over by biting soldier ants. I tore off my jacket and just flung it into the undergrowth. It was crawling with ants. They wow. crept up in my hair. Boot-sucking I mean, we mud. Bitten. Oh, boot-sucking mud. But then at the end, and having taken a couple of false turns, so we were virtually on our knees, suddenly, in a little glade, in a little grove, there was a little sweet homemade sign tapped in, rather like something in Winnie the Pooh, which just said, this is the longest source of the Nile. And there it was, a tiny, tiny trickle coming out of the ground at about, we were at about 8,000 feet, this little tiny bit of river, well, river, I mean, if you'd poured it out of a teacup, <laughs> it would have been more than what, what was coming out of the ground there, Rick. Oh. But the thrill of standing there at the source of the and having been at exactly the other end as it tipped itself into the, oh. into the Mediterranean. Oh, yeah. And having traveled all the way from Rosetta, the town where the Nile hits the Mediterranean, yes. you yes. did the whole thing. And you captured it thing. on film and you're sharing it with us. 
Joanna Lumley, your DVD of your experience is now available in the United States. It's Joanna Lumley's Nile. Thank you very much for sharing this beautiful adventure. Thank you so much, Rick. And as Patsy would say, cheers, sweetie. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Samantha Brown has advice to help keep us light on our feet when our travels seem like they're just turning into a lot of work. Samantha joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. As a self-proclaimed airport geek, there's hardly an aspect of travel that Samantha Brown doesn't love. Over the last 20 years, she's visited more than 250 cities and 60 countries. She's learned plenty along the way. Her travel tips are aimed not only to ensure a smooth journey, but to help you find the heart of the places you visit. Samantha hosts the public television series Places to Love, and she joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share her best travel tips and strategies. Samantha, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. Boy, you know, it's so fun to get together because you and I spend a lot of time on the road and everybody's got their own school of hard knocks, and I think you and I both enjoy learning from that. I'm always impressed when people say travel is just too much trouble. It's exhausting. Flying is a drag, and and then (laughs) I think we see it differently. You know, we can talk about basic travel tips later, but let's start out with just a broad question. How do you replace the, quote, trouble of travel with the joy of travel? Oh, boy. I mean, I would say for me, the trouble of travel is planning it. I'm not a planner. I just get bogged down by the details and the reviews and all these things I should know. And so I think to really tap into the joy of travel is just generally get to a place and let the day take you where it wants to and just let that spontaneity of travel of being somewhere new kind of revitalize you and bring you back. But I I understand the drudgery of sometimes of just planning all the minutiae of travel, but the joy of it is just being in a new place and having a different perspective and just letting that day take you where, where it should go. I think people do overthink it a lot of times. I remember when I was in my very early days, I would start my lecture by saying, you know, a lot of people, they're they're at home before their trip, just in the kitchen, just thinking, what can I be worried about next about the trip? You know, it's going to be okay. Just get over there. It's it's like, it's not, you're not going to war here. It's just a vacation. You know, I've got phrases and philosophies that that I I just love in my writing and my teaching. And I'm just going to throw a couple of phrases at you, and I'd love to just get your your take on it, if it resonates with you or, or whatever. But I like to say, when it comes to travel, if it's not to your liking, change your liking. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very good, you know, shift your perspective. That's that's what it's about. And um, I always love to just the, the newness of travel, how it opens up other things in your life. So go with it. So yes, change your liking. That comes from a tour guide's point of view, because I can take one group to a spot and they're having a great time, and the next group goes to the same spot and they're not having a great time. And it's uh, a lot of it is the attitude you bring to it. Also, a lot of people are really afraid to, to make a mistake. I say celebrate your mistakes. That's a great one right there. Yeah, I think the goal of travel is never that it's perfect, right? If it, it never goes perfectly. And I think people have this mindset of just everything has to go right. And no, it doesn't. In fact, a lot of times if there's a plan A and that gets um, shoved to the side, plan B was the better choice and you're just going to go with it. Well, I guess we should have done this. (laughs) It's like there's positive serendipity and there's negative serendipity. Turn that serendipity into positive. Oftentimes it's the best memories. I remember when I was in Japan, Samantha, I was so befuddled. And (laughs) I was, I, I just, people could look at me and go, there's a, 
a big, tall, white guy who's lost. And they would come out and help me just right out of the... They would just think, this guy is hopeless. And I just laughed at myself in Japan. I was fumbling around Japan. I, I didn't know the language. I didn't know the characters. I didn't know the culture. And I just enjoyed being befuddled. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's interesting. When I was in Europe, I felt like I really had to know my stuff because I was an American and where I'm from, we're kind of of Europe and New England. And uh, that's why I love Asia is because you just have no idea what's going on. And so you just let all of that expectation you think you have of yourself and just have fun. You're five years old. You're a kid. This is all new. And as long as you're not disrespectful and uh, you're going to be fine. I love India. It's my favorite country, I say, because it rearranges my cultural furniture and it wallops my ethnocentrism. (laughs) I love to have my (laughs) ethnocentrism walloped. Anytime you can get ethnocentrism into a sentence, that's a good day. (laughs) (laughs) You can play a drinking game and get drunk in a hurry if you talk to me without one of the the words. (laughs) Um, One of my new themes is to be a cultural chameleon. Are you a chameleon when you travel? Yes, definitely, in terms of even dress. How, How so in dress? Well, I always tell people, you know, never wear, like, Lily Pulitzer orange and pink when you're in Europe. (laughs) You're just going to stand out. As Americans, we dress brightly. And if you go to Europe, I notice it's much more earth tones. And and so there is just an assimilation that you want. Um, Or in Italy, they dress so lovely. So I don't like to look like I'm just uh, schlepping around. I like to really inhabit a place and how they dress. So that is more of a a chameleon attitude just in terms of my physical appearance. Yeah, and you you you, you nailed it there. I mean, if you're on a bus in Europe and, and you look, everybody seems to be dressing in these sort of similar tones, and it's nice mm-hmm. to, to be that chameleon. And I've noticed, too, because sometimes I'm just slumming around backpacker. I'll sit on the mm-hmm. floor and I mean, gnaw on a sandwich, you know, and, and uh, I realize I'm not fitting in here. This country takes pride in how they look, and uh, mm-hmm. I should get my act together a little bit. Um, when we're traveling, we're always sort of looking to stir up experiences. And I find there's a very fundamental philosophy of if an opportunity presents itself, the answer is yes. In so many cases, you're tired, you, know, you had something else planned, but here's something really surprising, and you can say yes or no. It seems kind of obvious, but say yes. Yeah, my background is actually acting. And a huge part of that was improvisation. And the rule, one rule of improvisation is you always say yes and. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's improvisation. You never drop the ball. It's yes and. And then that's how you build upon that. So uh, what works for improvisation works for travel. And, And travel is one big improvisation. You just go with the flow. So, yes. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Samantha Brown, the host of the Places to Love Travel series on public television. She streams episodes from her adventures in such places as Houston, San Antonio, Louisville, Boston, and the Jersey Shore on her website, samantha-brown.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com, and Christine in Shawnee, Kansas, has emailed us. And Christine writes... I love to extend my group trips by a few solo days on each end. Samantha Brown helps me envision what a mature single woman might do in the location. She helps me be a bit more adventurous and bold. After watching Samantha wander around Paris, I set off exploring. Stumbling across the same bull players she met near the Eiffel Tower, I struck up a conversation I might have never had and enjoyed some shared laughter over strategies. 
thank you, Samantha, for inspiring me to go solo, even if it's just for a few days on the beginning or the end of a tour that I'll be taking. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I love when people are inspired. Absolutely. That's that's what we want. And I also love the fact that the definition of independent traveler has changed. It has evolved. It's not just you are totally on your own backpacking across Europe. Yeah, you can do it. So you're doing a hybrid model of maybe you're getting comfortable with a group tour, really knowing the sites, and then you feel confident to go out on your own for just a two days. That That's such freedom, oh. and that's just really using that time um, worthwhile. Making and I encourage that. You know, with our tours, we like it when people go over a couple of days early. Of course, they get over mm. jet lag and they're settled by the time the tour starts, but they also get their sea legs or whatever you call it, get their bearings of just not of that country, but of just being away from home in general. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the trip, they're eager to have some time on their own. And uh, if you can afford the time, I think that's a great idea. So thanks, Christine, for the email. Stephen in Cudahy, Wisconsin, has emailed us. And Stephen writes... I love travel but hate airports. What are your Mm. tips to make time at airports more enjoyable? And, Samantha, you are a self-described airport geek. So uh, how are you an airport geek, and what would you say to Stephen? Uh, Stephen, for me, uh, the airport is like a teenage girl mall. (laughs) For me, I love airports. I just love them. I hate the security line. I hate getting through that. But I feel that while the airplane experience has just gone downhill in terms of treating us not as human beings, the airport experience has gotten better and better in that now airports are bringing in more of the local goods that you would find or even restaurants that you would find, (laughs) you know, downtown. So you can have a local experience. You can get a a massage. Uh, I I just like to walk and wander. And I also like to go by gates to see where everyone's going. You know, I think Mm. that's really exciting. Uh, So I guess that's where the geek comes in. But I think the first thing you need to do to really enjoy an airport is to get there in plenty of time. A lot of times we hate the airport because we haven't allowed enough time to feel you know, that anxiety comes up. And believe it or not, 22 years of travel, I still feel anxiety to get to the airport and get through. So it never ends. And it's not, you know, it's not because you're not an expert or don't travel as much as we do. I still have that anxiety. So I always base getting to the airport on the boarding time of my flight, not on the flight departure, because that's 45 minutes before. And that gives me plenty of time when I have that time in mind, not the departure time of my flight. I bring stuff to do at the airport and get there early because I don't want to start all stressed out and I don't want to risk missing the flight, obviously. Yeah, they've got Wi-Fi, they've got seating, they've got great food now. I mean, you can, yeah, yeah, you go there and you do work and you just get settled so you're prepared for anything. One of my splurges, it's it's not very inexpensive, but I, if I've got a lot of time at an airport, I will pay for the business lounge and Mm. uh, I don't have frequent flyer miles or anything like that, but um, I can just pay for it. I can make the airport a very relaxing and and comfortable and productive and enjoyable time. Hey, just quickly to go through um, flying, how do you prepare for a long flight? Uh, I walk a lot. I actually, uh, sometimes I do have access to those lounges and I don't use the lounge. I walk and walk and walk so that when I finally get to my seat, I'm exhausted. But then I have Mm -hmm. like a tiered approach to, um, I have the serious work that I need to 
to conquer on the flight because I've got dedicated time to do it, which is great. And then I move on to a fun novel, so I'll bring that. And then I have like fashion magazine, you know, candy, <laughs> just to like with that, that needs no brain power whatsoever just mm-hmm. to get me through. And that's it. But I I do love long flights because I I have time, and um, I've always found them to be actually quite relaxing. Yeah, I like it. Me time. It's my it's rare me time, and I the main thing is just to be comfortable and to be busy. Again, I'm going to just go through a whole bunch of tips because we're running out of time here, but window or aisle? Uh, aisle. Hmm, why? I, I hate being yeah, trapped. Trapped in. Yeah, I agree. Feeling, I'm, feeling the, I'm the same way. I've migrated from the window to the aisle for yeah, that You're tall, reason. too. Yeah, you need, you need that extra space, Rick. What, what's your most valued carry-on? What do you be sure to carry on with you? A notebook and pen. Notebook and pen. Okay. Meanderings. My my noise reduction headphones. I just oh, <laughs> nice. um, they help me get some private time too because when I'm wearing that, people don't interrupt me. What are your tips for dealing with airline regulations that are frustrating to you? Just like a baggage, like how big my bag is, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah, just you know what they are and then print them because I have found that a lot of those airlines they'll change that now. Now your carry on has to fit in that you know sizer. Right. And yeah. it has to fit the exact dimensions. But if you're online, it just says something like 44 linear inches. So you could have a bag that's 44 linear inches, but it's not that exact shape. But they haven't changed the language, and that's not fair. So if you don't have that perfect size bag, but you have 44 linear inches, you have a carry on bag, bring that, print it, and say, this is what it says on your website. This is 44 linear inches. Yeah. But yeah, know what the regulations are, print them just so you have them. And because they're all different, and it is, it is frustrating. Give me a couple of itinerary tips. How do you plan a smart schedule? Oh, boy, direct when I can. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the goal. I don't care if it's first class or I'm back by the bathroom. Exactly. Direct, I'm, I'm the same way. You know? Direct. Exactly. Direct. I think it's worth the money. It's worth certainly worth your time. Two flights is just that much more frustration. Am I going to make the next flight? What if there's an issue? Will yeah. my bags make it? All of that ends when it's a direct flight. We're talking with Samantha Brown. Her TV show is Places to Love. And uh, we're talking travel tips. And Michael in Houston emailed us and asks, uh, what are your tips for handling jet lag? When I arrive early in the morning in Europe, I spend as much time as possible outside walking. Any other tips? I've got a good one. So three days before I leave, I refrain from all caffeine. So it totally leaves my body. Then when I arrive in Europe, and you're usually arriving like what around like six a.m. Isn't it like like seven a.m. and you're oh, oh, and you're yeah. tired and you smell that coffee in the airport? Don't get the coffee. Then you get to your hotel and you smell the coffee in your hotel. Don't reach for a coffee. Get outside, walk around, and I wait and I wait until like the muscles in my body have solidified to cement. I'm so tired because jet lag can affect you that, you know, drastically. And then and only then will I have a double espresso. And I'll shoot that thing back and man, it hits my system like 10 horses and I go the entire rest of the day. 9 p.m. I'm in bed, I'm asleep, and I have reset my clock. That is the most unique, yeah. clever approach to jet lag. I'm, I don't know if I could go that long without coffee, but I'm... <laughs> I was, yeah, it's all the manipulation of coffee. Right. That's what it's right there. <laughs> and uh, Samantha, Eric in Denver emailed us, and he says, uh, don't be afraid to book a long layover. On my way back from Scandinavia years ago, I opted for an eight-hour layover in Frankfurt, and it allowed me to hit the city and have the best broadburst of my life. Have you ever thought about long layovers and how you use your time between flights on the way home? Yeah. And, you know, depending on the flight, yeah, layovers are good. If you're going to Asia, especially a layover is good because those are long, long flights. 
and uh, it's good just to stretch your legs. Uh, but it's never an hour and a half. It's always at least three hours. But for the longer ones, yeah, like Schiphol, if you're flying into, if you're going to Europe and you're flying through Schiphol, you can quickly get to Amsterdam, no problem. That's what I did, and that's how I enjoyed that city for the very first time in my 20s, and I loved well, if it. You've, if you've never been to Amsterdam and you're flying and you happen to be randomly stopping with six hours in, at Schiphol, you could mm-hmm. do that. I've I've really never done it because I don't know. Oh, my problem is I, I never check a bag. So I've always got my all my luggage with me. That's why yes, I don't do those. And, uh, I suppose there's was, a way to lock it at the airport, but I've never done that. Well, I don't think so after 9-11. I think those yeah. lockers went away. So, so this was pre-9-11. But yeah, if, you're, so. if you check your bag, um, you could do that. But people do it. I think it's a very clever idea, and I'm usually mm-hmm. the ballsy one, I think. But in this case, I couldn't really relax on the streets mm-hmm. of the city knowing I've got a flight in, in four hours. I I yep. just, That's why I, I did it in my twenties. <laughs> I don't do it anymore either. <laughs> That's right. But I think, but if you're doing like a three-hour, like if you're going through these big airports, they're actually really enjoyable. Like if you're in uh, Changi, oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, oh, yeah. they're, they're, so spend some time, enjoy that. You really will benefit from that. That quick, quick yeah. connecting flight. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Right. Don't and do it. Um, let's see. Just really quickly, when you move into a hotel room. How do you settle into a hotel room? Because you spend a lot of nights alone on the road, and your hotel is your home. Oh, yeah. I have a whole system there, too. So (laughs) every tchotchke the hotel puts out, sometimes they have those. They're called table tents, those plastic things that put, like, I don't know, drink specials on. Like, I don't care about that. (laughs) All that stuff goes away. And then this is the thing. I learned how to use the shower because this is my pet peeve of travel. One of them is there are probably four million different combinations of how to turn a shower on in the world. And you will will encounter all of them. And it will take you sometimes, especially in Europe, seven minutes just to figure out how to get hot water. And so I never never rely on that the morning of our, you know, like a shoot. So you have to be somewhere. People are counting on you and you're just trying to take a shower. So I do a run through. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, it's so much fun, Samantha, to be with you. And one thing is we can laugh about our mistakes and we can enjoy the school of hard knocks as part of the joy of travel. And travel teaches us lessons about how to travel better, but it also teaches us lessons about life, I think. And for me, that could be a good souvenir. Let's wrap up our conversation with what's an important um, life experience that travel has taught you? Oh, boy. And it's still teaching me is patience. And not everything has to be perfect. It is how you interpret it and approach it and just enjoy it. Go with the flow. And uh, I'm, I feel like you and I are similar. We, we're, we're perfectionists, especially because this is our profession. But there are times when it really teaches me it's okay. You can just let this happen how it's happening. I think we try to control things, especially Americans, because we come from a really big country with amazing travels within it. But we know the language. We know the currency. We understand a lot of the culture. And we try to bring that same sense of control and certainty to travel. And that's where we make the mistake. And so just to let that go and to trust that that is going to be an amazing experience in itself. In itself. You summed it up right there. That's going to be an amazing experience in itself. And if you don't get out there and risk, you know, stumbling, you won't mm-hmm. have those experiences. And your trip will come home, uh, everything worked out fine, and I saw all those sites and I checked off my bucket list. And uh, But you didn't have that magic. You didn't make that place a place to love. Mm-hmm. Samantha Brown, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. 
Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to the BBC in London and the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help this week. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.